had taken her hand as they walked to the water. He held it now, and she didn't withdraw it from his. She said, I haven't done this for a long, long time. Her voice wasn't brittle. She wasn't playing a game with him. She was alone here, with him but alone. The wind swirled her hair across her face until he could see only the slant of her forehead and her cheek. Happiness rose like a spire within him. He hadn't expected ever to know happiness again. His voice stirred. Laurel. She turned her head slowly, as if surprised that he was there. The wind blew her hair like mist across her face. She lifted her face, and for the first time, there in the light of the sea and the stars, he knew the color of her eyes. The color of dusk and mist rising from the sea with the amber of stars flecking them. Laurel, he said, and she came to him the way he had known from the beginning it must be. Laurel, he cried, as if the word were the act. And there became a silence around them, a silence more vast than the thunderous ecstasy of the hungry sea. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Karl Bookmarks. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Friends, we're without Friedrich Peachy this time around. Um, last I heard, he was off writing a book about garden insects, but a, a little bit more esoteric and obscure ones. I think he's planning to call it Beyond Grub and Weevil. Uh, we'll see how that turns out. Hopefully he's back with us soon, but you're in capable hands tonight as we talk about Dorothy B. Hughes' In a Lonely Place. But first, as always, a few items of business before we get started. You can follow us on social media. We are still on Twitter at the Readers K. Friedrich Peachy has taken over the airwaves there. Uh, we are no longer on Facebook, sadly, or not so sadly. But you can email us at thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. Send in any questions or comments. We might even read them on the air if they're good enough. And uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Listen to us on Spotify, via Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And as always, a really sincere plea that you tell your friends about the podcast. Recommend it. Um, send it along to them. We are very much a word of mouth podcast at this point, especially now that we've kind of gone dark. So anybody you can tell would be wonderful. Bring them along on this intellectual journey with us. We are, uh, as I said, talking tonight about Dorothy B. Hughes's noir classic, In a Lonely Place. And as always, I'm going to be giving a brief plot summary, and then I'm going to toss it over to Carl. This is his pick for our mystery section this season. And let him talk a little bit about why he chose this book, which I think we both really enjoyed and are eager to talk about. Uh, but first, a little summary for you. And I, there will be some spoilers, friends, so sorry about that. In a Lonely Place is a noir 
set in Los Angeles, as pretty much all the good noirs are. And it follows a former U.S. Air Force pilot in World War II named Dix Steele. He has just moved out to California to write a book. He meets up with his old army buddy, Brub Nikolai. I should just note for the record that this book has some of the greatest names in mm-hmm. literature. Um, <laughs> and Brub has just gotten married to a somewhat plain but lovely woman named Sylvia. They bring dicks into their world a little bit. Brub has also started working as a police detective for the city of Los Angeles. And he's very wrapped up in a string of strangling murders where a man has kind of lured young women into his car and then strangled them, killed them, uh, and dumped them in various places in the greater Los Angeles area. Because of his sort of interest in detective stories, he says he's writing a detective novel, Dix gets involved in the investigation, but simultaneously he also meets a very striking young woman named Laurel Gray, who's staying in an apartment that's near the place where he's staying. He's staying in a friend's apartment. And they strike up a friendship that then very quickly turns into a romantic relationship. And so the book is sort of a balancing of that relationship along with the murder investigation. However, I will say, and, and this is, we've got to talk about this, so I have to spoil it a little bit. As you go along, you start to get a creeping sense that something's not quite right with Dick's steel. And he's sort of deliberately, um, the book is told in sort of a free indirect discourse so you're kind of close to his thoughts at all times it's not quite first person but you're very close to his thoughts you start to wonder could this guy be the person who's murdering all of these women the the book progresses brub gets deeper into the investigation and then at the end it's revealed that yes in fact dix is the murderer he's acting sort of out of a, a subconscious sense of guilt he apparently killed the only woman he ever loved um, a British woman named Brucey that he had met during the war. Um, he killed her, and then because of that, he sort of acts out his vengeance against himself, against all these other women uh, throughout the book. And, and so that's sort of the very conclusion of the book that we reach. So that's the story of In a Lonely Place. If you're only familiar with the film version, I will say it's quite a bit different. We're going to talk about that in a bonus episode next week. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But it is quite a bit different than the 1950 version um, starring Humphrey Bogart. But uh, it is a, a classic in its own right, as, as the film is as well. Carl, I'm going to let you talk just for a minute about why you picked this book, how you think it fits into the season, and then we'll go from there and start talking about the various very interesting, I think, matters of philosophical content and really form that we want to explore in the book. Yeah, thank you so much, Sarn. Uh, what a great summary as always. I definitely wanted to get in this sort of season of the fraternal and the the male male bonds going on a lot of places with monks and things some feminine voice and feminist voice and the the sort of revenge of the femme here the noir genre often has the femme fatale and we get a very clever almost transcendent sort of deconstruction of the noir here with the the home fatale the the protagonist who we learn is himself the kind of male femme fatale figure as the book goes on and i think dorothy hughes is doing some really clever and interesting things talking about post-war masculinity talking about the noir genre talking about la talking about the detective genre and like we've said in past episodes how epistemology and violence seem to have this strange but almost happy pairing and she brings a really interesting 
critique of that to the guy who we learn and we suspect it's an interesting way to talk about this book at what point did you suspect that Dix was in fact the killer right there are clues almost from the first page but I'd say by halfway through you a reader who's read a few norm before is pretty suspicious but I think that's kind of an interesting question nevertheless she brings a real biting like irony and critique to him as the writer of a detective book he's researching a detective book and he couldn't be more masculine right he's dixon steel nevertheless it's he it's him who's the killer right he is the one who everyone is looking for and it's the two female characters who kind of outside of the the wiles of brub and the whole lapd entrap and then nail him which is lost in the movie, kind of unfortunately, right? But a major point to the book, and I think a major aspect of what Dorothy Hughes is trying to say in this book about the noir, about what happened after the war and where that culture seeped into the kind of 50s in the States and in the UK and all kinds of things. So I just think it's such a great way to talk about the genre and it's such a fun read. Dix has this kind of compelling aspect as a character uh, and the way he talks about loneliness and the way Dorothy Hughes is really invested in him as a character, even though he is our like terrible killer, kind of precedes something like American Psycho or other, you know, later like kind of horror books that really get into the mindset of the killer, right? And take that as worth a lot of our narrative investment it precedes a lot of that in i think interesting ways too so i think it's such a good good book to think about i want to pick up on um, one of those threads that you sort of mentioned here as a starting place which is kind of the form of the book as a mystery and you, you raised the i think the very good question at what point do you start to suspect dicks as the murderer and and like you i think for me it was pretty quickly and it was almost to the point where at times it felt so obvious that I said, it couldn't, this can't possibly be her. She's got to be messing with us, right? And so it, mm-hmm. it sort of becomes its own little game within the book, which right. I find very fun. And and because we have this free indirect discourse, we're getting these thoughts in, as they're coming into his head. And he's constantly saying stuff about like, oh, the police aren't going to care about the dust in my car and all this mm-hmm. stuff that's like ends up making sense because he actually is the killer and he's thinking through these things. But at the time it feels like he's always playing this game with yeah. the police. Like he's doing it for fun. He's just sort of getting his jollies or something right in a weird way, but then is also messing with us, the reader. And and I think what makes it a pleasurable book is that unlike some mysteries or noirs where you read it once and then you never really want to read it again because it's just, about the mystery, the steel trap mm-hmm. of the mystery, and then it's done and it's over, whatever. In this book, the mystery maybe feels more obvious on one level, but but at another level, then it's part of the game of the book itself as it sort of messes with you. And so that's a really beguiling thing, I think. I found it to be the case as I was reading through the sense of playfulness that's at work here, even in a very dark book. The game as it happens, as the mystery unfolds, is is I think quite a lot of fun I guess I wonder why it's a very odd choice in a lot of ways, or maybe just ahead of its time, you kind of reference some later works that follow it, to give us this all-access pass to the mind of a murderer. And I'm wondering why 
you think she chose to do that or what it opens up for her as the book goes on to give us access into the murderer's thoughts in ways that in maybe in some ways give the game away a little bit, but then also draw us deeper into the mystery as it unfolds. I mean, I can't say exactly what the sort of masterful like spark of insight was to like make that choice as a writer. I just think it's such a, like you're saying, it is very ahead of its time, but what it, part of what it lends itself to is this theme of, you know, where is Dick's in the kind of normalcy of masculinity at this time that's part of the reading it on a second or third time you see that oh when he becomes the killer is when it's just the case that you can actually pin him down as having been there to kill someone right up until that point he seems very defensive of anyone who would have been there in these moments potentially doing these things potentially outlaid or this violent or this kind of dismissive in certain instances and so you you really see her criticizing that and pinning it to a kind of war mentality there's a war mentality that can't be just stopped once civilian life starts for her and it's not just like in the mind of a one soldier or something it's like in the national fervor that kind of carries over after the war second world war is over we've won and we must project this continual sense of what it means to be the winner of this what it, what masculinity looks like therefore is this kind of macho winner able to be the more violent and able to kind of project these aspects of of violence out there and how that plays out in gender relations that's kind of all over the book and that's why like sylvia picks up on that right away she's very keen to those kinds of things and and dix is really upset that right away that's not something that he can kind of win over on her and that kind of builds and builds so that that the twin aspect of the plot of him slowly being revealed as the killer and her slowly seeing more and more of how it must obviously be him kind of plays into what you're asking i think I think that's a great point about about the war. Captain Lochner, who's like heading up the investigation, at one point makes the comment to Brub and, and Dix that they know it must be a guy who was in the army because he fits the profile and it's like everybody was in the army, right? And so there's this kind of, it's, it is a sort of fascinating window onto this immediate post-war moment. This comes out in 1947 or 48, right? So it's right after the war. This moment of high triumph for the United States. Hughes is there sort of pointing out what might be some of the dark underbelly there. Because in a sense, you know, you, you could make this argument certainly that it's what Dix learns in the war, not just in the formal war, but literally when he, when he's killing a woman in the war, right, out of some sort of misplaced sense of jealousy, we don't know exactly why, right, that he then brings back to the States with him and enacts on everybody else there. So he's bringing the war home with him in a very vicious way. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good point about it. I'm also interested in this point you just brought up and kind of brought up earlier as well, and I want to press on it a little bit. You talked just now about how the book has sort of these dual cores of not just us growing more suspicious of Dix, but Sylvia, Brub's wife, gradually unpacking the case against him in her own mind, at least, and then springing the trap at the end as she does. And and earlier you had said that the moment maybe in which Dix becomes the, the murderer is the moment in which we can pin it on him. And so I think that that's a really, th- those two thoughts together make something really productive, which is this book is maybe not about like exactly about 
who done it, but about how do we frame this and how do we prove, how do we have this solid evidence that he did it? Um, even if we have all of these sort of psychological suspicions that might be the case well beforehand, like how do we build that evidence? And so I guess it's, to me, breaks down to something along the lines of, do we trust intuition or do we trust a sort of rational materialist case for things? Because there's kind of both going on, right? Sylvia's case is very intuitive, at least at the beginning, right? She just doesn't like or trust him and feels like he's a bad egg and he's like, something's wrong with him. And and we get the sense that she feels that from the very beginning. And then she's got to sort of rationalize it along. But meanwhile, the police are taking this very materialist, rationalist approach to things. They're gathering this evidence and they're not getting anything done. And it's only the intuition that sort of launches them into that space of actually being able to prove it. So I guess as we've been talking about since we were talking about Sherlock Holmes, like what's the relationship then in this book between intuition and then irrationalism or materialism that builds that case patiently bit by bit? Yeah. And I think here, as opposed to like, I think in Devil in a Blue Dress, we get a little bit more, it's weighted towards the intuitionist, the pragmatist approach, and the two seem somewhat irreconcilable. And likewise, in Holmes, the the rationalist approach seems less than reconcilable with the kind of goofy policeman who's trying to figure things out with some kind of intuition or, you know, lucky attempt at finding the truth, right? There's almost a harmonious, and the marriage of Brub and Sylvia is that harmonious marriage, right? Of um, intuition leads and rationalism corroborates or verifies and were it not for sylvia's hunches and intuitions the i don't know if entrapment i guess because there's a legal definition of that that's probably not the right word but um the trap sprung on dicks by sylvia would not have been conceived or would not have worked perhaps um with just brub kind of running the show and the friendship there i think is is also kind of somewhat of an allegorical friendship between the the good war hero or war um, veteran who comes back and very calmly and sublimates themselves into society very well versus dicks who kind of can't do that something went wrong something was unhinged in war and something about the war economy and the war mindset changed him irrevocably for the worse there's that clear line between those two I think that those are productive thoughts. I want to press just a second more on the materiality of this book, because that's one of the things that really stuck out to me. Obviously, you're in a noir. You're going to expect a lot of cigarettes being lit and a lot of drinks (laughs) being drunken. But this is an incredibly almost like tactile book in terms of the depth of, right? It's only 200 pages, but there's so many descriptions of what Dix is eating. He goes out to so many meals. Of course, mm-hmm. that plays a major plot point later on. But um, but also just this world of eating and drinking and even shaving. There's a big point about how he uses an electric razor. It must have been one of the yeah. very early models because he can't. His his hands don't stay steady enough to really shave with a with a, a regular razor. And so there's a there's a real sense, and you know, there's a lot of concern with like the the color of the suits that he's wearing and all these mm-hmm. things, right? There's an incredible materiality to this book that I think it works in some really fascinating ways, both at of course at the level of the mystery, because there's all this, there's this whole subplot where he's like, 
they can't take tire tracks, can they? Right? Wink, wink. Like match them to tires around. You know, that's a big point in the investigation. Can we match these tire tracks to to my car? Right? Can we match the sand from the beach to my car and all of these things? Mm-hmm. So it's part of the investigation that materiality, but then it's also part to me of a way of both disguising and revealing the psychological depths of Dix as a character, yeah. because there are so many moments where we don't really get. It's not like Dix is giving us his inner thoughts. He's trying to disguise them from us, really, right? He's trying to keep us at arm's length. But we get these this sense of like, okay, something's gone wrong here in his train of thought. So he's going to have a drink. And he notes so many times, I didn't actually need a drink. I was just having a drink, right? Or something like that along those lines. But we get a sense of him very much as a physical being. He gets a, he sleeps at weird hours, right? He gets up at 2 p.m. and immediately he goes and has like steak and eggs or whatever. And then he's up at he's up till 10 p.m. when he has like a five course dinner at 10 p.m. Right? There's all these weird physical markers that were given throughout the book of Dix as a character that really. Both give, I mean, give it a very vivid sense of like, here's, this is 1948 California. Let's go to the drive-in and get a coffee at 9 p.m. Or let's go to our club and have shrimp cocktail or whatever, (laughs) right? There's that, there's that element to it. But then there's also this element of Dix as a character can't reveal himself through giving us his inner monologues. And so Hughes reveals him to us in part through the material world that he's existing in. Yeah. And he's coded feminine in some interesting ways like you're saying his clothes and his meals are very important and he he kills by the month right when it's that time of the month he kills (laughs) we might even say and dorothy hughes knows that that's one way to think about him Uh, that's what makes him the home fatale instead of the femme fatale Um, it's just a masterful way of playing with his character this extremely masculine man is doing some really interesting things and worrying about tire tracks and worrying about physicality in some interesting ways. I think there's something interesting going on with Laurel Gray in all of this, who eventually teams up with Sylvia to kind of bring Dix in. And the name, too, like a gray Laurel for these two writers, Brub and Dix, in a noir, the gray, no- the gray Laurels, the crown for the poet who writes the best poetry or something. Dorothy Hughes does a great job of subverting what we might expect from Laurel as well. And her ability to kind of be intrigued by Dix, but remain her own person with her own apartment that's not his place. And that plays into the title. One of the many lonely places in the book is his apartment, which is his friend's apartment, which he's renting which connects him to Laurel too. So I thought, I don't know, Soren, if you want to jump in on some of those connections, I thought they were important to the book. Yeah, I mean, the color uh, palette is very noticeable with Laurel as a character. And of course, like me being me, I'm like thinking this is noir, so I'm like thinking it in black and white basically. But but she is striking yeah. because, you know, her name is Laurel Gray, which of course fits into that, that gray scale right there of colors. But then she's, noted multiple times throughout the book that she has this striking red hair. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of an important pop of color into an otherwise drab world that gives her that sort of femme fatale feel because she does in fact have a sort of femme fatale feel as well throughout the book. But what's great then, as you sort of notice that 
Hughes is then reversing that and showing us that actually Dix is apparently the the home fatale, as you've put it. He's the one who is is actually dangerous, and Laurel is the one in the end who helps Sylvia kind of unravel that mystery. And what's great about it is that she basically ends up in charge of the relationship in ways that makes Dix very dependent. And it's it is a sort of you know, maybe in some ways almost a too obvious like kind of role reversal here where instead of the man sort of being in charge and manipulating and emotionally manipulating, it's the woman who's doing that here. She keeps him on a string. She keeps him leading him along. Mm-hmm. She's the one who sets the agenda. She comes when she wants to. He doesn't ever go in her apartment. She only comes right. to his apartment. So there's all these, there's sort of, sort of like power imbalances going on in the relationship. And um, because of that, she she is sort of able to keep her distance and, and avoid, of course, getting killed by him, for one thing, um, but then also kind of <laughs> taking him down in the end. And yeah, she she put, she occupies this. If, if Dix, as you sort of rightly point out, is, is a somewhat feminized man, she's a sort of masculinized woman in a lot of ways, not just because of her independence, but in part because of that. Um, she doesn't need Dix. Dix needs her. At the same time, I wonder... This is bringing me to to a question that I've wanted to explore in the book, because the thing that Laurel and Dix seem to have in common is that they are on the outside looking in of the sort of social structure of L.A. Laurel has had a failed marriage to a wealthy man, mm-hmm. is now apparently being kept by this man through a divorce settlement or something, right? The details are unclear. So she has a little bit of independent wealth, but she comes from a, from a nothing background. Dix's background is very fascinating, at least what he tells us of it. And, you know, not entirely sure how much we can trust, but he has a, a, a an uncle who worked his way up from nothing and now provides him with the money with which he can write. His uncle sent him to Princeton, where he never really fit in because he was the, the hard work clerk at his uncle's store. Um, he goes off to the war, which is the great leveler in cl- terms of class. But then he comes back and he doesn't know what to do with himself. And Mel, the terrorist, which is a great another great name, um, the man who he's renting this apartment from, who, another spoiler, sorry, it in fact turns out he has murdered and stolen the apartment from, uh, is, is one of his wealthy Princeton friends. And in college, Dix was like his procurer. He made sure he always had friends around. He gave him his cast off women and in return, Mel would give him money basically. And so there's all this weird class resentment going on in the book. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Brub is almost like a reverse arrow here because he comes from a wealthy background, but he's going to have given that all up to become a detective, right? To serve the greater good. And his wife is not, <laughs> not from a wealthy background. And so there's all these interesting class elements. This almost reads to me in part like, a sort of weird riff on the great Gatsby, like in, in some like very weird <laughs> ways, like there's the, the Princetonian, like mm-hmm. class striving, trying to become a new person, remake yourself as a person of wealth and taste that Dix is doing throughout. I know it's a, it's a stretch. It's a stretch, but there's I that. like, and really don't. Like <laughs> okay, good, good. That's all I ask for. But there's <laughs> this, there's a, you know, the, the sense of class that's at play here is really finely tuned. And, the war is such a strange complication in that because it was this leveling factor, right? He he gets these great honors because he's good at being a pilot, but then he comes back and nothing's really changed for him in life, and he can't seem to really get ahead, or at least he thinks that. And that's a feeling, obviously, there's like the weird psychosexual stuff, but also the class stuff is like motivating a lot of what he's thinking about and how he lives his life. Yeah, I think that's totally on point so much of 
literature that takes place in America has a lot to say about which kinds of micro divisions between class strivers do we like and do we not like um if you've seen the black mirror episode nosedive i mean that's class striver there but most people do not like the protagonist of that episode and then like you know benita and walter and uh raisin in the sun are very much class strivers but are valued and valorized though some people hate walter and love benita and vice versa so gatsby fits into that too i think dicks and brub like you're saying soren are really interesting takes on that where brub is kind of like the class anti-striver in some way let me relinquish class or assume that class can be relinquished in some important way and i think that kind of gives a really interesting lens on his friendship with dicks and his wanting to believe that dicks is innocent or putting the blinders on with respect to all the evidence like how could you do this dicks whereas sylvia and laurel i think lauren laurel knows a lot of interesting things about class striving in the way that for female characters in the novels of these times certainly that involves a certain kind of marriage relationship a lot of the time and it didn't work out for her and there's this really interesting passage where dix is looking at her place maybe or i forget exactly where we are but this picture of the man on top of the dressing table the face leered it was if the man were a god her household god and she cheated on him she cheated even on her god this idea that her like benefactor or something is her deity in her household because the picture is there really weirdly <laughs> conflates like religion and class and all kinds of things there but there's a way that he really can understand all the other characters uh relationships with class and class striving but he sees himself as kind of the arch striver for this thing that his uncle won't give him but he's not willing to really do anything for it which is kind of what laurel calls him out for like she's like oh i could marry you but you're clearly not ever gonna like get a job and work nine to five and you know you know be a kind of normal person who is willing to do those kinds of things so all that's pretty interesting yeah he's in dicks in another world is like a kind of charming like grifter character right he's just like living off of his uncle's largesse he's always trying to scam more money out of his uncle except that it turns out he's also you know a psychopath killer and <laughs> he's like charging credit to his dead uh, landlord is his account and everything so yeah um there yeah i think there's these different ways in which class is really marked pretty strongly in this book and and even to kind of tie two threads together here even in the way that food is depicted um we have sort of different levels there's this fancy restaurant that a couple of times he he sort of mentions oh i'm going to take you out there laurel you know but he never of course never does because he didn't have the money for it although i think at one point he gets a solo meal there when he gets a little bit of money in and that's like the best place you could go and then there's sort of brub and sylvia's club which is apparently where they go most nights for dinner instead of cooking mm -hmm. at home right is they go out to their club and it's like nice but it's not super fancy because brub as you sort of rightly notice kind of slumming right he's he's let go of his family's money in order to do this sort of middle class lifestyle and then we have the at the lowest rung here like the drive-in which is becomes an important plot point in 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 the book there's a sort of like proto mcdonald's here or sonic or something <laughs> right and these are these places where it's like it doesn't matter you can like take a you know take a girl who's not very 
well off or whatever. This is where, where you take her, right? For for a good date. But this is where the the, the hoi polloi go in, in Los Angeles. But even that's interestingly is predicated on a new social structure built around the car, right? Where mm, everybody yeah. seems to have access to cars in this book. Um, and that's sort of the democratizing element that's happened here, even as class still becomes very important, marked up by things like houses and eating spaces. The car is this sort of leveling effect in the book that brings everybody kind of closer together. So there's, there's some interesting tension at work here. I think Hughes recognizes the American society post-World War II is still very stratified in terms of class, but at the same time, there's this democratizing impulse that's brought about by something like the automobile that levels that playing field for a bit. Yeah, that's a great point about the automobile and how it's really changes in how the automobile is thought of and how culture puts on a pedestal. Different versions of the automobile has been so important for American culture and certain types like the Bonnie and Clyde era is a bit over at this point, but it's now in people's heads, you know, the people who can get in a car and commit murders and go to another place and there are even a few points where if like you've watched a few whatever serial killer documentaries or something you're like clearly dicks could just go to the next state uh, at this time (laughs) and like no one would be in any sort of uh contact with anyone else and they're worried about him they're like don't you go anywhere but i mean he clearly could have and that was reading the novel those were his outs, you know, go back to New York, go with Laurel to New York. He's thinking about that. And then he's, you know, a step too late, but yeah, the, from the tire tracks to the drive in to driving to the beach to commit kind of his, the murder that really pins him. The car is kind of a central character weirdly. And it's not his car and whether or not he parks the car in the garage or on the street is very important in terms of how evidence can be gathered on him. So that's that's definitely a great point. In some ways, it occurs to me that Los Angeles is the perfect emblem of this because because New York is still so, it's like old world enough that everything is tightly packed and it's there's public transport. But Los Angeles is, is very right. much that frontier city in that way where you have to drive places. You need an automobile to survive, right? In a lot of ways, at least if you're going to make it you know, successfully in, in Los Angeles, you got to have a car, you got to drive around. People still complain about that today, right? Uh, about, about the traffic, but there's that sense of the car being this means of opportunity, but then also, I think in the end, and one of the lonely places of the book, this exactly, isolating, I was just gonna say, yeah, um, this isolating place. Let's talk a little bit about that. Then that theme of loneliness. The first thing that came into my head when I was reading through, and I realized, oh, Dick Steele. Is, is a pilot, is, of course, the really lovely W.B. Yeats poem, An Irish Airman Foresees His Death, where he's talking about Lady Gregory's son who dies in World War One. And he's it's from his perspective, and he's trying to explain why he became this fighter pilot, basically, in World War One. He says, you know, those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. And then he says, instead, it was a, a lonely impulse of delight that drove him up into the air. And I wonder... I'm not going to claim anything about, you know, like a line of influence here or anything, but that does strike me as a good way to get into some of the ways in which loneliness is operating in this book. It it is very striking to me that there's this choice of Dix as a fighter pilot, as somebody who's up in the air by himself in that lonely place. That's sort of the original lonely place in his life. 
being up apart from everything else in that fighter plane that then carries over to these other spaces in the book. Obviously, the car being one of them that we just mentioned, but then his apartment, as you said before, Carl, I think that's really good. All of these lonely spaces, we might call them, that lend themselves then to, of course, the ultimate lonely place, which is the inside of his own head or what, you know, however you want to phrase that. There's all these ways in which loneliness is operating in an almost physical way throughout the book. And so I'm wondering what you think are the more interesting elements of loneliness and how that's kind of baked into the book. The word and the phrase come up many times in the book, and you see Dix trying to fit some concepts in his like hierarchy of values above loneliness and being unable to. And I think that's what makes uh, this a really masterful novel that Hughes is really trying to grapple with how lonely people feel just in general and how difficult it is for anybody to get something that makes them happy enough to not feel lonely or to let loneliness pale in comparison to something else. And so at a point he talks about friendship or love for Laurel, obviously, but it doesn't work well enough for him. And I think there's a real sympathy on the narrative level for that. There's just this loneliness you know epitomized by the fighter pilot alone in the air or certainly if you've ever driven a car at night where you're the only person in the car and you turn the music off or something and it's just and especially if you live like in the midwest or something there's just like nothing around you for miles and you're just kind of this amazingly isolated being in the world. Mm -hmm. A friend once wrote a story where they liken that to being like in a spaceship in outer space, mm. driving in the Midwest by yourself at night. It's just you and corn or whatever. It's kind of achingly lonely, that feeling or that predicament. And someone who has that envy for his, his friend who has moved on and found friends and a community and a wife and kind of life that makes sense to him being able to kind of sublimate socially he can't find that he's an outsider there's some real sympathy for that and that loneliness of being an outsider is is toyed with in dicks there's some sympathy for it and then of course he bends it until it breaks right and that's part of what the arc of the novel is doing i think those are good thoughts carl i do want to interrogate maybe a little bit this idea of a contrast between Brub and Dix, which does clearly exist on one level. But I also wonder to what extent Brub himself is in a lonely place, too. I mean, despite his, he obviously has his marriage, which is, seems to be a source of great comfort to him. But then, you know, Brub and, and, and Sylvia exist in a world of like sociability and sort of and clubbiness, literally. But do they actually have friends? Like the only friends we meet of theirs are these people. And Brub's like, I really don't like them. I like, hate them, right? Basically, we're like only hanging out with them because we have to. And Brub is like consumed with his job and doing a good job there. And oftentimes Sylvia is just kind of left alone. At one point she comes over to Dix's apartment because Brub was like, I got to go to the office. Why don't you go hang out with Dix, right? And it's like this yeah. weird, like, you know, there's, there's just a loneliness that I feel like permeates the entire book of people who have maybe have places to hang out with each other to some extent, but 
they don't have real deep relationships. And that's what makes, you know, Brub and Dick's, it's a weird friendship. And of course, in the end, it turns bad because you know, Dick's is a murderer. But like, there's that sense on Brub's part. I liked what you said earlier about like, he basically just wants to keep the blinders on because he cannot deal with the idea that Dick's, who he highly regards as his like war buddy, could be this awful person he can't deal with that Mm -hmm. reality for sure and so there's this need like he really is kind of a needy character in his own way brub is needing that sense of friendship needing that affirmation that dicks might bring him that's sort of missing from his life i mean it's Mm -hmm. it's there in one sense with his marriage to sylvia but in terms of the sort of male bonding or however we want to put that it's pretty absent in the book and i think that's another way in which maybe this book is pretty predictive of things to come, you know, of, of course, like 40 or 50 years after this, you know, Robert Putnam's going to write Bowling Alone, right? And there's the sense of like, even those clubby things have decayed over the last 50 years. But maybe, you know, Hughes makes us at least stop and wonder, like, are the roots of that there in, in the post-war moment itself? The dissolution of those communal bonds that happen through these sort of informal relationships at, at the bowling alley or at the club or whatever, <laughs> like, are those things somehow already rotting in that post-war moment like are those things disappearing such that sure you can go to the club and people will be like hey this guy right and they'll say hey brub how's the investigation going or whatever but like you never actually connect with somebody you never have a, a, a real friendship with the people around you it's just marked by this very superficial set of relationships oh sure i mean like the the rise of whatever the petrochemical and the the suburb style of setting up a city that leads to you know the the moose lodge or the elk lodge or the kiwanis club and everything where who knows how friendly you are just by having the same you know badge on your vest or whatever that doesn't really stand in for real friendship in the same way that like a facebook friend isn't a real friend necessarily all that i think is is definitely there and that's another american literature thing like the the outsider is usually favored over the the person who sublimates there there's very rarely the the character we side with who sublimates and who seems like smart and canny and able to make real friendships who is ultimately the the company man or the company woman or very happy in their middle class life Uh, most people like the edward norton fight club guy or whatever who's like what's going on here in my middle class life i i need to have a crisis this can't be you know my this can't be the end all i need something more serious so i think that's definitely there yeah it pushes the reader to side again more with someone like dix or someone like laurel who's kind of outside of that searching for something more than that and it makes you question sylvia too into this sense of brub i mean brub just isn't a very it doesn't strike us as the most serious character brub nikolai and so as someone married to brub nikolai you know also kind of hedging and willing to kind of make a few sacrifices on this existential level that are a bit perplexing you know that make us question her as a character and how authentic she is i want to do a really deep dive for a minute and talk about one word in this book 
that shows up a lot. We talked about one phrase in, in The Lonely Place. There's a word that I learned from this book, or maybe I knew it at one point and forgotten it, but it comes up, I would say, at least four or five times throughout the book. And this is Dick's describing what he calls his megrims, um, which I just want to say in like an like an Irish accent, like, they're always after me grims. But this is like megrim, which is this really weird word that I learned, again, learned from this book. Um, and it's it's a uh, basically a state of depression. What I learned d- deep diving on this word because I was fascinated by it is it's related to the word migraine, actually. It literally goes back. I think the ultimate root is something like half of a skull or something like it's like you're missing half of your head. But what I found fascinating about this word in terms of the context of loneliness is this idea that Dix's bouts about, you know, they're bouts of madness, I guess you call them when he murders, but they're also sort of bouts of depression, right? It's like these low spirits that he gets struck with. And there's this tie between that violent behavior and the sort of the mental troubles he's having. Maybe, maybe there's some PTSD there. I don't know, whatever, you know, we don't need to, to psychoanalyze him as a character necessarily, but there's this sense of the megrims coming back again and again. It's like this this low spiritedness that leads him to act out in this way where, where he he murders for whatever reason that that word just stuck out to me in the way it kept coming back of a sense of just a, a lowness or a, a, like a almost like a lonely place inside of your head and an emptiness in your head right going back to that idea of the migraine like a a head pain that forces you to act out of it to me it strikes me that Dix is and maybe you, you read this differently Carl but to me, it seems like Dix's actions in these moments when he kills really are like almost fugue states, right? He clearly knows what he's doing because he remembers them. So they're not fugue states in that sense, but like there's this impulse that he can't control when he gets into the megrim state. And that's kind of the the moment at which he acts out and commits these terrible crimes. I, I just wonder to what extent like is his depression or his overall low spirits then related to the violence. And and I'm interested in this in part, and again, not to say too much because we'll talk about this in the next episode, but like in the movie version of this, it's really more about an uncontrollable anger, right? We'll get to that. But here it doesn't seem like it's really that. It seems like it's almost like a killing out of depression or something like that obviously there's like a there's an intense sense of something wrong there but it's not quite the same shade at least as as i read it and so i i don't know what to make of this but i'm fascinated by the megram the sense of the lowness of spirit the loneliness of inside of yourself that then leads you to kill or act out in that way wow what a question it seemed to me that again it's hard not to see this as a precursor to books where the psychology of serial killing is a little bit better studied and known almost like there's this almost innate compulsion for that kind of killing as like a, not a need so much about like a, a deep impulse for that type of experience uh, from a serial killer. It's like a, methodical uh ritual thing that needs to be repeated and you get that like brucey was the inciting kill that he's out to repeat and replicate in every other kill in some way and i think it's like 
Betsy Banning is one of the characters who gets killed, who like looks like Brucey, and that's you know there's a very clear psychology of a serial killer there that you can think of like a Ted Bundy had that same psychology or something. So I was really impressed by that early sense of psychological insight when I thought of kind of what's happening with this state of mind that Dix gets into when he kills. But on a different note, if you're saying the megrims means like half a mind or something or a not full mind or a mind that's kind of embedded with some kind of emptiness that strikes me as interesting in a way let's say for a second hughes was tapped into that etymology or something a positive emptiness is injected into someone and if a person views their own selfhood or their own consciousness as this loneliness that's kind of positive in some way they need desperately to connect it to something else there are characters like Dix who would see that ultimate connection as murder right again that's the psychology of the killer there's nothing more consummating or something than murder because you're sort of fully in possession of another person obviously to the the wrong the deep wrong and illegality of that act but to their psychology that's kind of what makes it fulfilling or would potentially negate that loneliness take that loneliness away with some kind of completion i don't know if that's something that you were looking for but that's one way i would take it or think about it yeah i like that there's a sense of emptiness that's trying to be filled there in what he's he's doing do you have anything else yeah i really just like the way that it ended Again, for the genre, it's really unique and kind of interesting that it seems like Sylvia and Laurel were working together. And the line, I believe, is like, it worked, is just a classic line in the genre. And for this time of, um, there's another twist, which is that like the Sylvia and Laurel have been working together, it seems like. I just like that as, a, as another narrative twist. I love the when a writer can give you a twist you're looking for and then a twist you weren't looking for. And I feel like this book does that really well. Yeah, I love that line. This is from Sylvia. And it says, She wasn't hysterical. What she cried was bell clear. It mm-hmm. worked, she cried in her husky voice. It worked. A nice little moment there of masculinization again right of a husky voice that's yeah. calling out but it's calling out like a clear bell it's that moment of that sort of that that triumph of setting up that that trap that system that then pulls in the killer yeah i think that's really good it, it is a gr- it's a great ending in in terms of where it leads us and then even the very last line because that's like the page before the end and the very last line is just he wept I killed Brucey, right? And so there's that, that last little twist of the knife leading us back to that. You know, we're back in Dix's sort of world and perspective, but it's a very abrupt feeling. Like it's a, this confession that we get finally. Everything wraps together in that moment. So it is a nice, it's a really nice, clear, crisp ending in a lot of ways. Um, it's really, yeah, very well done, I think. Yeah, and because right up to that point, he's thinking about how his lawyer would get him out of this Mm -hmm. right and how 
the rational side of the epistemology would not be able to convict him. But he's having a hard time denying like his gut yeah. here. Yeah. Which is a weird time to to have that to have that trouble if you're trying to save your own skin. And he says You couldn't think of everything when you were rushed, when your luck had run out. All right, that whole system of, you know, planting the evidence and finding what tires were there when and what dust was there. Screw it. He he's lost. <laughs> he's he can't stay in that game the whole time. Well, having come to the end, I think that's a good place to end our discussion um, this time around. Thank you, Carl, for choosing this really, really wonderful kind of provocative book in a lot of ways. Um, had a lot of really a, a lot of fun talking about it uh, with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will be back, so we have a bonus episode next week. Extra content for your ear holes. Uh, in which Carl and I, uh, Friedrich will still be on vacation, but Carl and I are going to be talking about our two film adaptations, um, the 1995 Carl Franklin adaptation of Devil in a Blue Dress, and then the 1950 Nicholas Ray uh, adaptation of In a Lonely Place, which, as we noted, is quite different. Uh, So tune in for those. We're going to be talking about film form and issues of adaptation, certainly, and and things like that. So it should be a good conversation. We'll be back for that. And then the week after, so you get three three weeks in a row of our delightful voices. We're going to be back starting our final cycle of the season, which we're calling Mirth, after, of course, Aristotle's lost book of comedy in The Name of the Rose. And we'll be uh, starting with Friedrich's last pick of the season, which is Thomas Carlyle's wonderful, weird Sartre Resartus, which is not like any book you've ever read before, maybe, unless it is. Um, and we'll come back and talk about that uh, when we get there. But until then, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. magical elixir of dreams and sometimes nightmares. It's a common drink throughout most places in the United States, yet it remains a mystery in others. Some people have asked me how I make my iced tea, and I hope this video will demonstrate how I do it. Even though the process differs from person to person. Enjoy.